You're listening to Campus Review Radio. This is Carl Treacher, and I'm joined by Martin Betts. We're the founders of HEDEX, and our podcast explores the changing landscape of the higher education sector in association with Campus Review. Welcome to the Higher Education Experience. On this episode of HEDEX, we speak with John Griffiths. We look at the year that was 2020, and we look into the crystal ball of 2021. Well, what a year it's been, eh, Carl? I mean, who'd have um, thought this at the start of the year? But it's it's been great to, to, for us, for HEDEX, to have generated so much interest in the, the topics that have obviously been of concern to us. And to have that coming to a, to a head with John Griffiths of QTAC here today. So tell me a little bit about John Griffiths. Well, I mean, John's one of those um, many great, great members of the the sector who do so much good work behind the scenes, really. I mean, the tertiary admissions centres are not widely known to the wider public in Australia. Well, I mean, in many ways they are, because so many of our young people find that as the route into getting to universities. So each of our states has one of these, and there are investments by the universities in the state in processing the huge volume of people every year that are trying to gain admission and to do that in an objective way is something that we trust the tertiary admission centers and we then build up the capacity for them to have a really rich understanding of what's happening day by day week by week and over longer periods years years to years of the the trends in young people looking and and all people looking to university for their futures and typically is that one of the key data points that universities reflect on when they are setting up um you know the strategy for the next year or, or next period Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, 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 as, as, as we'll hear in the interview with John, this has gone from being the, the sort of end of September deadline day for applications and uh, the summer processing when everyone else is on the beach of, of offers from, from applications and preferences that are expressed by young people. This has gone to a continuous year-round activity, which is one of the biggest innovations in the sector. And I mean, one of the one of the expressions that I've always heard said in university executives is that it's all about the numbers. And one of the numbers that it's been most about for years and years is your preferences for the year, the load targets that you're trying to meet, the students that you're going to have ready and waiting to be engaged in your university's activities when you get back on deck at the start of the year. Well. It's been the challenge to those numbers that's been the huge upheaval this year because one big part of it in international students has been, un, you know, in a way that couldn't be foreseen and in a way that universities have had no control over, completely undermined. So it's now all about other numbers. So John and his team and, and people that work in that area would be, um, it would have been a really interesting and novel year for them, I imagine. Well, they'll have. Um, they'll. I, I, there's been so much stability in the patterns of what goes on in our universities for years and years and years. We've been saying that in many of the episodes of of Headex this this year. The the variations have been around the edges rather than complete transformation, disruption, and upheaval. And you know, when when we um when we had so many people out of out of work in the early part of this year because of the lockdowns and the um, disruptions to other business operations. We saw huge spikes then in, in mid-year applications to our universities, and we've seen that continue in terms of what people are expecting to do with the, their time and they're changing their own career trajectories into 2021. So, 
Yeah, the year-on-year comparisons that we've always had have become very different sort of comparisons at the end of 2020 in our tertiary admission centres. And who is it that analyses that for, you know, in the university? So you get this information, where does it go to? Who, who reviews that, you know, puts it into some sort of a, you know, a strategy or, or a plan? Well, it is all about the numbers and the council meetings that are probably happening in all of our universities just about now. I know of a number of universities that we're working with that are having council meetings this week, for instance. Right. Um, mm-hmm. The numbers that they'll be looking at will be setting the budgets for at least one year and, and more typically three years into the future. And they'll be substantially informed by the forecasts of how many students are going to show up next year. Now, in the past, that's been slight variations around the edges, as I've said before. There's been more, um, more indirect forecasts of international student numbers. Well, they've been substantially reduced for 2021 and beyond, um, with a long pipeline of reduced numbers from those that didn't, didn't show up this year. Um, And now we've got the much fiercer competition for domestic students happening with the implication of the Jobs Ready graduate package having come in um, and disrupted the the pricing to this year's intakes for different subjects and clusters with the implications of the funding that goes through to universities not being in the same proportion. We discussed that in the Andrew Norton episode a little while ago. So... Look, councils are meeting and and considering those numbers and looking at approvals for organisational changes and job losses this this very week and while we speak in a number of our universities around the country. And so so at a governance level, people will look at those. But if you're running a, a large business unit in the university, as I was for a number of years, I'd wake up every morning to see what the numbers looked like of what the trends were and what the progress had been in marketing campaigns that week of how many people you were getting into your engineering programs with first preferences that week. They're as important as that. I see, I see. All right, why don't we have a listen to what uh, John had to say? So today's guest in the HeadX studio is John Griffiths, the Chief Executive Officer of QTAC, the Tertiary Admissions Centre in Queensland, who's um, a former Assistant Vice-Chancellor in New Zealand and has also chaired the Australasian Conference of Tertiary Admissions Centres. John, welcome to HeadX. Thanks, Martin. Good to be here. John, we've recently seen some of the latest continuous tranche of data coming out, uh, both in terms of graduate outcome surveys, but one one that I noticed for the first time was some of the recent trends as we come towards the end of 2020 data in undergraduate applications, offers and acceptances across Australia. I don't know if you've seen that data and how you're seeing or you will have been observing the trends and what and to what extent are they continuing continuing what's been building as trends in our admissions data? Over, over the recent years and and the impacts of 2020. Um, it's a good question to start with. Uh, it's been a, look. It's been a really interesting year. Um, we saw a, a major decline in applications in March and April this year, as you could well expect at the start of the pandemic. And uh, indeed, I think one week we had some less than 100 applications that basically stopped. However, application numbers uh, bounced back and uh, it started to exceed pre-pandemic expectations from April onwards. Um, We're um, in Queensland, 20% increase compared to last year, although last year we had a half-year cohort in the year 12. So uh, if we adjust for that, we're about 6% ahead now. Um, It has come back considerably from where it was, but it's still, um, still 6% is quite strong. We have made close to 10,000 offers uh, the emission period to date. We've just had a 
and offer around for the year 12 students today. So it's about four and a half thousand have gone out today. That's about a 38% increase in offers compared to the same point in 2019, probably largely due to the new conditional offer initiative for year 12 students coming through. So uh, more students and more offers. Other trends we're observing is that demand in the education field is continuing to rebound with an adjusted growth rate of about 15%, mostly attributed to the non-year 12 cohort. Uh, first preferences in management and commerce continue to decline this year. It's at an adjusted rate of about 13% downwards, and that's similar to previous years. So we're seeing we're seeing a downward trend um, uh, right across right across the board for management and commerce. What about STEM and health, John? I mean, um, there's a lot of emphasis in the job ready graduates package about trying to increase the numbers of applicants through a price stimulus of, of those disciplines that it's, it's felt by some are more likely to lead to um, post-graduation em- employment. We were seeing growth in STEM and health numbers before that package was introduced, weren't we? Yeah, we, we were. The health field and it encompasses a lot of qualifications on the health field, but the health field's always been strong. So um, interest is high for 2021. Uh, about a third of all preference, first preferences are in the health field. And as you suggested, uh, certainly amongst the non-year 12 applicants, there's been a steady increase in the health over the three years. The, the increase in, in STEM is, is seen with the National Physical Sciences being the uh, the largest this year up across across the five years since two thousand and seventeen. So on that, then I, I, we had Andrew Norton on the on the podcast series a couple of weeks ago, and he was drawing our attention to the um, contradiction um, in what he was seeing in the job ready graduate package between because we were making some of our discipline clusters more or less attractive, but that wasn't in line with how universities would be funded. We might get some unintended consequences. How, now you're starting to get some offer data as well as the application data. Do, do you have a sense in to which Andrew's, Andrew Norton's apparent contradiction or the, the ministers in planned and intention is the way, the way it's going to play out this year? Um, we'd like Andrew's always that sort of, speculating on what might happen. Um, we'll probably take a little bit more conservative approach. Um, at this stage, we haven't seen any evidence that the job ready graduate package uh, has impl- is impacted on student choices. Our research has looked at trends before the package was announced and after announced after legislation passed. We would perhaps expect to see those trends play out over the next couple of years before we see any significant change. Look, in part, this is led by the universities who have already been realigning their programs across time. Um, what, what the trend we've seen, all that said, the trend we've seen um, so far, and we would think would be a direct response to the job ready package, was um, a spike in interest for semester three uh, 2020 um, applicants. Uh, we've gone up by about 400 applicants, which, which doesn't sound a lot, but in percentage terms, it's, it's in excess of 60%. So semester three has not been a big market offering in Queensland. Uh, it, it is growing and certainly seen a, a large increase this year. You, you've been in this game for a fair while now, John, haven't you? You've been looking at the data in Queensland <laughs> and through your role with the Australasian Conference across our different admissions centres. How, how long do you think major changes in the policy settings and the supply side take to work through in terms of, of young people and their responses in applications? You mentioned a couple of years. What, 
What, what, what do you think we're likely to see over the next three to five years in response to the Job Ready Graduate Package, if anything, and its impact on student demand? I guess sort of there's two part answers to that. For some students, regardless of, of what they're probably going to pay for their course, they will want to go and do the course because um, that's what they're after. It meets their career aspirations. So I think if you're, uh, I, I always fall back on the medical example. If you're tracing a medical degree, you're probably prepared to almost move anywhere in Australia and to some degree you're prepared to pay pay whatever fees they are. There's, there's a limit to that. Um, then, then you've got other students which are, are perhaps a bit more price sensitive. But ultimately, I think price is one factor. I think students also looking at the quality of the education they get, how long it's going to take, and, and, and whether they expect to get a job at the end of it um, as all factors. So, you know, the job ready package provides some effect. It obviously provides an important signaling effect. But I think because of the ability to defer, defer your fees, it might be some years before it flows through. But ultimately, I think it's about students going to pick courses that they, they want to do um, and that they feel they're going to better get a job at the end of it. So so um, you're, you're giving us some really insightful commentary there into how this year has played out and how that builds upon previous years with regard to Job Ready Graduate Package. But this year has been unusual, not just not just for that bit of policy coming through, but of course, you know, the, the experience has changed because so much has been online. There's been so many people unemployed and looking for postgraduate or, as you say, the non-school leaver market. There's been the extra emphasis on short course and micro-credential courses. Are you seeing demand and and maybe even the supply coming through your systems of how universities and their markets are changing with regard to some of those other areas of study and how they're becoming accelerated in their attraction to the marketplace? Yeah, absolutely. So um, when most universities towards the start of the year had to rapidly move to an online uh, system or an online delivery, I should say, um, rather than an on-campus delivery um it was probably seen as okay we'll, we'll do we'll do this for a little while and, and then we'll move back to it back to an on-campus delivery and, and the status quo will be resumed i guess it's a bit like um working from home and then you know how, how, how do we move forward in a blended model so i think universities are now looking at that blended model and say well, look it worked just, just pros and cons. I mean, a lot of blood bat university is an experience. So some of the data we have got, there's been about a 30% increase in the number of courses offered online, uh, external and a blended mode since 2015. More interestingly, have about a, just a standard 50% increase in these courses since last year. Um, so what we see is a lot of our institutional clients now providing students with more study mode options, because they've developed and proven their um, capacity in this space, and I think what was once taught in a classroom can uh, universities are realising can be taught online. You're not compromising the quality. The the micro credential industry is a really really interesting one. I've been I've been following this quite closely for a number of years. Um, so it was it was rising well rising in interest well before COVID came along. Uh, but I think it's now been given um, an additional injection of interest um, due to the instability of the employment landscape, where lots of people are finding they they had a good job, they didn't expect they'd ever be made redundant, and overnight you've made redundant. Nothing to do with you except except the business just lost most 
most of its revenue, I know. So, you know, people in the travel industry, this has happened to. So they're no fault of their own. And they're going back and saying, well, what skills do I have? Now, that might be somebody who has a degree uh, a long time ago and they're looking to update those skills or somebody who has no formal qualifications and they're, they're searching around for you, know, how do the micro-credentials fit in? Well, one, one thing that um, COVID and pandemic and a financial crisis does appear to have brought to the fore is something that um, that I know you've had a lot of interest in for some while, and that's innovation and admissions policy. How much impact has what different universities have been making with early offers and um, changes to the admissions process and criteria having... Are you seeing some really good innovations there? And do you have some examples that you could share with us? Yeah, I, I think the, the biggest example I'm seeing is, is, the, is the move to early offers. So we're um, pre pre the uh, the pandemic, we were moving to early conditional offers for year twelve students. Anyone, I get, and I guess that built on year twelve students in particular being made offers on the last day of school, and then we we're making conditional offers. So if you meet if you meet these criteria, you'll, you will be made an offer, and whatever those criteria would be would be set by the universities with a, an overriding criteria that you had to finish school. Um, the other big thing that's happened this year, and hopefully it won't happen next year because we'll be out of the pandemic, is the um, increase to the uh, educational access scheme. Yeah, challenging and interesting, but I'm really interested in you um, speculating there that uh, we, we're not going back to, to how it was and that the move towards innovation and admissions policy will endure even though we, we really hope that, that next year's year 12s don't have anything like the same interruption to study that this year's year 12s have had. So you really think the world of early offers and different ways of managing admissions with more flexibility, diversity, and innovation of that is is the new normal, eh? Oh, very much so. I think we've um, we've seen it coming for a while. We pioneered early, um, early offers um, some years back, and that was seen as innovative when we did it. Then everybody just moved to that, and now that's the new norm we're seeing. You know, South of all of New South Wales, I think they opened up their admissions period in April. We've always opened up in August, so we're sort of moving to us a continuous sort of basis of admissions. And well, it, it's a, it's a good thing because it gives certainty to students who could who could, could be admitted. And I would draw I draw a line on the sand and say, for Year Twelve, we wanted to finish Year Twelve. There's a lot of benefit in just getting the study habits and the maturity. For non-year 12 students, I think absolutely we should be making offers as soon as possible. So we'll see that innovation come. And I guess it's a bit like it's a bit like moving to the blended learning model. It, it was a it was a probably a good thing to come out of the crisis. It works and it sort of becomes the new norm and people will start to say, why did we do it in the past? I have a saying with my staff, never waste a good crisis. And that's um we've got to take something good away from from what's happened and i think there are some good things we've, we've challenged some of the norms which perhaps wouldn't have been challenged in the past so there's you um congratulating or, or applauding some steps by universities in response to the crisis what, what else do you think the executives of a university right now need to be thinking about and could be doing with regard to changes in the market in terms of their policies and strategies to better engage with them do you think if I was sitting on a university executive now, I, I think we're forever balancing the, the student um, research sort of community industry engagement trifecta. But I think for students, nothing can replace a quality student experience um, with good engaging teaching by highly qualified uh, and experienced lecturers, whether that's face-to-face, online. Um, so not saying that it's not, not good at the moment, it's just it's an ongoing challenge. I think 
having sound student-centric policy and investing, supporting the, the high-quality blended learning is going to be really important to sustain that. I think students now have an expectation. And like any good students, and like um, the young cohort in particular coming through, they're always looking for something better than, than it was the previous year. So they the expectations are being raised all the time. And, and right across the sector, we need to respond to those expectations. And so uh, expectations on an admissions here just to turn around things quicker than we ever can because it's what the universities want. That's what, our, what's what the, cut, the uh, students want. I, and I think finally it'll put universities at the forefront of some new markets such as the short courses, the micro-credentialing, the remote and online learning in, in virtual environments. And that's and that's a good thing. It's a challenge to get that up and running, but it's about it's about a degree of entrepreneurship, it's about a degree of innovation. Uh, and those I think can get it right and establish a market presence are going to do really well. Okay, well, look, thanks very much for sharing some of those insights with us here on HeadX, John. You, as, as we said in the intro, you've got a wealth of experience and have had to apply that in the most challenging of all years. We, we wish you and all of the um, leaders and workers in all of our tertiary admission centres the best over this coming summer, a different summer than we've ever seen before. Thanks very much for joining us on HeadX. Thanks, Martin. So, Martin, what do you make of that? Well, I, th- I think it's um, been a lot of confirmation in the analysis that John is able to make from the data that's available f- to him. I mean, he's, he's confirming a lot of the trends that we might have expected, the the trends towards different disciplines being more or less attractive, the continuing growth of STEM of, and health, the challenges for, for management and commerce and the arts disciplines. Um, the unintended consequences of the Jobs Ready graduate package is, is, is something that he's throwing further light, light on and is confirming the move that particularly happened in 2020 towards greater online study of either a blended or purposeful online courses and the move towards micro-credentials. So I think there's a lot of confirmation in the market data in what John was able to share. Was I right in thinking he said something around a, an ongoing trend around reduction in, in commerce and business studies? Absolutely. This has been a really big issue that's, that's been playing out longer in the postgraduate space where the, um, the, the willingness of the, the graduate market to look to MBAs and master's programs in business and commerce and marketing and management areas has been declining. I think that's um, been a symptom of employers being more reluctant to allow significant amounts of time off and invest some of their own training budgets in up to two-year master's programs and and for professionals to find that to invest so much of their own time or or sometimes their own, uh, oftentimes increasingly their own money in such education has been under pressure. Well, that's um, in for a number of years now moved down or moved on to be affecting the numbers that are, are studying undergraduate management and commerce degrees. They've been falling quite rapidly for a number of years now. Do you think the the uh, increase in micro credentials and interest in you know, private courses and other things that are available online has had an impact, direct impact on that? I'm absolutely sure it has. And look, I mean, I've I've, I've shared this. You and I have shared this sort of analogy before. I, th- I think there's a bit of a. We, we, we said before we heard from John that it is all about the numbers, and there's a great danger of. Um, you know, you, you, you give attention to, to that which you can measure sometimes. And um, if you've been measuring things year in, year out, and you've got the latest year's data, you tend to then be preoccupied with what the delta is in some of that. But 
the disruption that might be happening, if, if, if you take the analogy of a boiled frog, um, a, a, a body, a vessel of water that's getting a little bit warmer doesn't feel as uncomfortable as it would appear if you just look outside the thing and see that there's a real fierce flame there that's having a long-term effect. And that means looking at different numbers. And um, he, he pointed to the move to online and micro-credentials. There's many commentators that would say that the decline in management and commerce postgraduate education for a number of years and the move away from that in undergraduate education is a symptom that people are, people are questioning whether a university degree and whether um, three and four year studies at undergraduate and one or two year studies at postgraduate is, is, re, is remaining valid. And indeed, there's some much greater evidence of that from other countries than there is from Australia. I think we've got to be really careful to not just look too close to home and too close to the past in our numbers and keep our eyes open and our minds open to the fact that there might be some much bigger phenomena at play that are probably accelerated out of COVID in 2020. And typically where, I mean, if I look at some of the other industries that we work in, there's, you know, neo banks, for instance, or, for, or um, digital banking, you don't really look to the States for that, but you look into Asia and Russia and other parts of the world to sort of give you that predictive insight. Um, typically in higher education, where does that come from? Like if you're looking for trends, who's, which you know, geographic region has the first mover sort of um, typical advantage or um, trend? Well, I think it would, it would more typically be a North American um, source of innovation in some of those things with, with Europe as well. I mean, there's been a huge rise in, in Asian universities in terms of um, their research capacity and their ability to recruit their own students rather than send them on to other other places, including Australia. But a lot of the really good innovations that have, have been happening in, in university practices around the world have originated um, from North America. Now, we've been, we've been a place of a lot of innovation ourselves in some of this, but I don't think... I don't think the way that markets are changing are being led by Australia. I think they're being led elsewhere. And therefore, whilst it is all about the numbers and we need to look at what's happening at home, I think we need to anticipate that there might be bigger forces at, at play and know where to look for them. And I suppose that's the thing with true disruption. It, it, it is disruptive because you don't see it coming. You're blindsided. It comes out of nowhere. Someone's analysed the pain points in the existing offering and all of a sudden, there's a value proposition that not just helps people get the job done or meet their needs, but it addresses all the traditional pain points. And with that comes massive, legitimate transformation where you see people changing behavior en masse. Well, absolutely. I mean, uh, and, and this comes back to, to a number of um, observations we've made in the course of, of the HeadX podcast series throughout 2020 that... Um, Again, the university landscape um, and competitive landscape has been built on history, reputation, tradition, doing things well, doing them, doing them for a long time, rather than first mover advantages and breaking out of the pack. Well, I'm, I, I think this is a different time now than we've ever faced before. And if the market really is accelerating and in, and in showing every prospect of transformation and disruption, then doing the old things better than everybody else with a reputation of having done them well in the past is not going to serve people well. We, we've seen that in, our, in the health check that we've worked with a number of universities on now, that it seeks to measure very different things rather than historical reputation and past financial performance. It seeks to measure agility, 
and how nimble an organisation might be and how well positioned it might be to, to flex and to, and to move forwards. And I'm, I'm absolutely sure that the markets are, are, are going through that sort of phenomena right now. I'm, I'm sure that's the case. You know, one of the other things I've noticed and picked up through other uh, discussions and work that we're doing at the moment out of uh, this category is 2021 has a, is taking on a particular flavor. There's a particular theme and feeling to it that I'm seeing consistently sort of embraced for anything from the small startup tech companies through to the traditional you know, big four banks. And that is that 2021 is going to be big. There's a hell of a lot of optimism around it. It's almost like we're trying to make up for you know the the year that was 2020 with um you know accelerated sense of, of progress and innovation in 2021 so uh, now in being in december we're seeing a hell of a lot of activity in preparation not just for q1 or uh, calendar year q1 but into the middle of next year yeah, and investment and resources all pointing towards making a making a big statement and getting out of the blocks very quickly as soon as we, uh, as soon as you know, industry returns to to work. Well, I, I, I'm interested in you observing that happening more broadly in business um, environments, and I can see that myself. And I just, I just worry about the impacts of that on our higher education sector at the moment, because I, I, to, to a significant extent, the the university system and the higher education sector is out of step with the rest of the economy. I, I fear. In that the big the big hit in employment for for tourism and hospitality happened in the middle part of this year, and there's been a lot of recovery since then. Mm. The, the the delayed reaction in universities has been quite different. I, I think most people in our universities are getting to the end of the year being incredibly tired. They've made mm. Herculean efforts to try and keep things on board. They've got to the end of the year. Students have graduated. Um, promotion rounds are completed, research grants have been awarded, performance reviews are taking place. Mm. People are absolutely exhausted and they're going to come back to the start of next year to very significant job losses, organisational changes, instability, some, something like chaotic operations in many cases. Mm. And while you're right, whilst the rest of the economy and our universities will need a fast start, quick out of the blocks, rapid transformation from the, from the start of next year people in our universities are not going to be in a in the optimum situation to embrace that and that's going to pro provide a really big strategic and cultural challenge to leaders in our universities for the start of 2021 so just without harping on culture too much that the, the biggest and the best pieces of work that we've done this year and for the last couple of years have been in strategy and cultural alignment so it, there's some sort of a problem or there's a challenge. It could be the Royal Commission into banking. It could be the Royal Commission into aged care. It could be whatever it might be. There's a crisis at hand and the pandemic is obviously the biggest crisis in living memory for most of us. So what comes out of that is uh, no longer can organisations sort of stand up a strategy and think they've got culture. Or like, there needs to be a real sense of safety and safe hands and experience and um, best practice around the way that they do that. So what we've done is we've taken a lot of our learnings from the tech companies, which are excellent at rapid transformation or um, cultural alignment very quickly or changing direction or responding to something and then standing up strategy and bolstering that with the appropriate culture. We've taken those frameworks and we're now applying those to traditional business. So most of my time now is helping traditional business move more like a tech company. And I think that there's real gold in that, and particularly in this particular sector where, 
you know, I, I, I've spent a little bit of time in the sector. You've spent your lifetime in the sector. And, and I don't necessarily think it does move at an optimal speed. I think now there's a real willingness to do that. But to find the tools and the techniques to actually make that change, you can't rely on the traditional um, ways of doing things, nor the traditional service providers to do that. You have to actually look for best practice, who's doing it well. Well, it's actually the Googles, the Apples, the Amazons, the Facebooks, the LinkedIn, the REA Group, the MYOB, the Seeks. Um, you know, it's those tech companies that have proven year in, year out that they know how to do it. And by picking up their frameworks and their methodology, which is actually very, it's quite um, available for anyone to pick up and see the way they do things. I'm talking about things beyond agile methodology. You can see it, you can pick it up, you can put it in. It won't work if your culture isn't ready to accept it. It will be fully rejected. And I suppose that's the thing that we're spending most of our time in is no longer we're educating companies around how to set the strategy up and how to use the frameworks, but we're spending most of our time in actually cultural alignment, culture development. How do we help organizations embrace change and really reject the inertia that's kept them where they've been for so long? Well, I, I, that, that sort of thinking and that sort of approach is going to be so, so relevant to universities at the start of next year. I mean, that universities haven't gone through rapid change in the same way that many other sectors have because there hasn't been a burning platform and there hasn't been the commercial imperative. They've They've been incrementally successful commercial operations and, and high-ranking academic endeavours in Australia for a long time on a continuing improving trajectory. Now there's been this rapid shock. Many of them, I think, did go to the traditional providers to work out how to go through org change and and re resize for the, the budget shock that they've had. But in doing so, I, I, I'm fearful for what will have happened because of the way that that was done for the culture of many of our universities. Mm. And I share your thought that they will only succeed and thrive and regrow and move on for the, the bigger changes that are happening out there with absolutely the right culture that aligns and supports strategy into the future. And for goodness sake, most, most of our leaders in higher education institutions, uh, you know, as one of them for many years, I know this only too well for myself, we, we, we didn't get into those positions by being long experienced practitioners of managing change and organizational transformation. But that's what they'll need to be now. And because they don't have a lot of that capability in their own history and experience, they'll need to draw on it from, from others that are prepared to assist it, that, that have lessons from the tech startup and tech companies and, and financial services, I'm sure. You know, I was uh, flabbergasted at times to see how little interest there was in certain universities around culture. As soon as we mentioned it, as soon as we said culture, you need to, it was sort of a, not only a, that's someone else's department, go and talk to HR, but it was a, it was, it just wasn't recognized as a business imperative or anything that was aligned to strategy. When I say to people, your strategy only works if you've got the right culture. It's not about having a healthy culture or a good culture. It is a strategically aligned culture. They finally get it. And that, that can be from the board, it can be from board governance through to executive teams looking to achieve, um, you know, objectives for their shareholders or whoever it might be. The strategy and the culture are inextricably linked. Strategy and culture alignment is, is so important. And I, I don't think many in the sector realise the, the accident waiting to happen here yet or the challenges they've got for the next year. The, the, they'll, leaders and everyone else will just be relieved to have got to the end of the year, got council approval for the changes, got a budget that looks like it's going to work. 
mm. and hoping to get the numbers that John Griffiths was talking about today in terms mm. of applicants and um, through admissions processes ready to study next year. But the 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 the, the you know the the rubber's going to hit the road in about February and March next year when staff are back in chaotic reorganized organization structures with students waiting to study with with thin down numbers all round and people trying to lift and and doing it the way that we've always done it with a culture that suffered from the the scars of 2020 boy that's going to be a challenge i think there's a lot of work going to have to go into this in all of our universities let me give you a secret. Here, I'm going to let you in with a little secret. One of the biggest things that we learned from the tech companies over the last, over the last 10 years and the healthy culture that's led to the, the productive innovation that they've experienced. Uh, culture and the culture of innovation is fueled by enjoyment. When you walk into Google, when you walk into Apple, any of those places, those people are having a good time. They're really optimistic. They're having a nice time. The first thing that we do is look at the climate of the organization. Do people feel, are they enjoying this? Is it a happy place? Is it a miserable place where people can't wait to get to Friday? Or is it somewhere where people are really interested in one another? They bring their whole self to work. They're authentic. They have a fantastic time. There's a really uh, uh, respectful, you know, psychologically healthy environment. That is the essence. That's the fuel behind innovative culture. And that's what worries me here a little bit. If we're we're coming out of a big battle for 2020 for this sector particularly, and it's and it's the real deal. How do they then put on a happy face and say, you know, we are going to innovate and we're going to do this properly? So, I think they can. I believe they can. We've done similar things with uh, you know banks coming out of royal commissions that were very very scarred and, and negative through that. You can only really turn the dial and start moving into this this rapid innovation and optimistic future if with a sense of enjoyment. It's a real cultural prerequisite. Yeah, well, I mean, some of the signs that I'm seeing in some of our universities are that maybe exactly the opposite from enjoyment and fun is what's going on. And I, I fear that, you know, it's, it's end-of-year performance reviews happening in many places. And one of the, one of the dominant approaches that with slimmed-down staffing profiles and pressure for performance that the management and leadership response is about increasing the numbers of targets of what individual people are, are, are expected to achieve. Mm. Um, and just making the targets bigger each year without giving support and giving people a platform from really feeling they're part of a collaborative culture, a team culture, a supported culture, it's just not going to work. It's so easy to set targets, but it's so much more difficult to provide the platform from which those targets can be reached. And look, people come into academia as, as, as professors, as lecturers, because they, they have a passion for their subject. And it, it, to, 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 to unleash that and to harness that by creating the right environment where people can apply that passion, apply that real enthusiasm to achieve great things, means hiring great people and getting out of their way. It doesn't mean micromanaging them with, with ever more detailed and, and unachievable targets. To turn the page a little bit, let's, uh, let's reflect on 2020 very quickly. I'm really surprised at the level of interest we've had. Look, I know you and I think HeadX is interesting, and it certainly um, is to, to you and I, but boy, we've had a, a surprising amount of interest coming from the sector from my perspective. Oh, it's been great, Carl, hasn't it? I mean, we, you know, we only started this, halfway through the year and um, 
we were, were getting some interesting characters and interesting people with a great history and uh, some exciting new thoughts about the sector at the start of at the start of the um, the series. But to have had so many vice chancellors, recent vice chancellors, leading commentators, all getting involved has been has been really exciting. And we've got a number of um, further vice chancellors lined up for early episodes next year, which will really get us off to a flying start. Not just that. I think we've got three vice-chancellors lined up for the start of 2021. We've got industry coming in. We've got students. I've got a a range of tech leaders, uh, tech company leaders that are going to speak about what works for them as an organisation. If I'm lucky, I might get a former premier on to talk about purpose and how important purpose is inside any organisation. So I'm very excited about 2021 and what it brings for us and it's going to be an incredibly interesting year for the sector in general certainly is i mean all of those things we were saying earlier about the things that the sector will face it will be great to have the platform of headex and to have the partnership with campus review Mm. to bring that to the attention of so many people in the sector and to continue just to to monitor and observe the the fascinating change that's happening in higher education And with that, Martin, thanks for being a terrific partner in HEDEX. It's been incredibly enjoyable and interesting. Uh, We've got a great 2021 ahead. All the best for Christmas break and uh, look forward to doing it again. Yeah, me too. All the best, Carl.